0: Welcome, and thank you for joining us today for the teaching and preaching ministry from Central Baptist Church, Kannapolis, North Carolina. Our senior pastor, Dean Hunter, shares from the Bible how to live in a fallen world. The goal of Central Baptist Church is to change the world by teaching the Word of God. Come, let's listen in. First John, chapter number three, we'll be in verses 11 through 19, we've been Walking through John's letter to the church for the last several weeks now. I think we're maybe into a couple months now. John is writing to believers. Oftentimes he says, Little children, we've learned that there are two families, only two families you can be a part of the family of God or the family of Satan. Sounds quite My family's calling. (laughs) I think we need a new policy. If it's going to ring out loud, answer it out loud. Put it on (laughs) speakerphone. Get our money's worth out of this. Two families. Only two families. It sounds pretty harsh to say you're a part of the family of God or part of the family of the devil. But that's the reality, and John says it. Jesus teaches it. And here in this letter he's writing, we see later in verse 13, I've alluded to this multiple times, really the ultimate purpose for John writing, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Throughout this letter, John over and over gives clear, concise realities evidences, if you will, for how a man, woman, boy, or girl can know that they're born again. We live in a a day and age that is not much different than it was a 100 years ago, where theologically, doctrinally, there are a lot of people who struggle with the question, how can I know that I'm saved? I'll never forget this. I've, I've mentioned this, I think, here before. I'll never forget one Sunday uh, after we had a special event going on, I can't remember what was happening, but there was a visitor, a visiting family, don't know them, haven't seen them since, and um, the, one of the parents or some adult came and said, hey, can you talk to this young lady? And uh, I came in, I spoke with her, she was an older teenager, and she was just weeping, and um, she just didn't know that she was saved. And the question was, how do I know? And I've been in church for for a pretty long time. And I've heard probably one of the silliest, pointless answers ever. And they quote, a person will quote, 1 John 5, 13. These things have I written that you may know. But that these things... Or chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four. The verse doesn't give anybody assurance. It's the context behind the verse. And here, sadly, I'll tell you, for probably 30 or 45 minutes, I talked to this girl, I prayed with this girl, parents were over there, and she left unsure of her salvation. Now, was she saved? I don't know. It's between her and God. But I do know this, there are people in this room who have a time and a place where they got saved. Or maybe they don't really have a time and a place, but they know they did, there was a, an event or a reckoning, if you will, and they know right now, I, I answer the question all the time, or I tell people, the, the answer to your question that I'm concerned about is not so much a time and a place, but do you know right now that you know you're born again? That's what matters. But there are people in churches every Sunday who have a time, have a place, have a youth camp, have a revival, have a specific event, but yet they live a defeated life because they're not sure of their salvation. They may be sure of a time and place. Don't, I'm not here to confuse you, but I think the devil can, can use a time and a place. I think the devil can use the water in that baptistry. You're saved, you got baptized there'll be a lot of baptized people that hear depart from me you workers of iniquity I never knew you and that shouldn't happen on our watch and John says I don't want it to happen on my watch so I'm writing these things unto you so that you know we can know we can have assurance in chapter 1 he says Uh, that your joy may be full. I'm writing these things so that you can know that you're born again, so that your joy may be full, not that you walk around as a defeated Christian saying, oh, I hope I'm going to heaven when I die. It's not a hope so. You can know so. And John wants you to know. And in today's passage, there's a four-letter word that we don't like to talk about. And John says, this is how every believer, every professing believer can test and pass the test to know that you're born again. And the word is love. Oh, I got one grunt. Trust me, I've grunted all week. Some of us just love, love, love. Some of us love differently. That is that a fair assessment. Some of it's genetic. Some of it is gender. A teenage girl can see a girl at school tomorrow that she saw today, and she'll act like they've been separated for months. Guys can go six months and not see a person and see him and go, What's up? <laughs> we still love, it's just expressed differently. We might go so far as to a fist bump. Or if we're really feeling godly, we'll shake the hand. John says, I'm writing these things so that you can know. And it's a fair assessment reading what I've studied this week to know that a genuine authentic Christian is evidenced by their lifestyle of love and John says love one another Would you stand as we read this passage together verses 11 through 19 we may preach it all I might get tired and say let's go home or you might just decide to leave whether by walking out or just falling asleep John says in verse 11 to us to the church for this is the message that you have heard from the very beginning that we should the church should love one another not as Cain this is fun not as Cain who was of that wicked one that's the devil and slew killed his brother murdered is the word his brother and wherefore why did he kill him because his own works were evil and his brothers were righteous marvel not church brethren don't be surprised brethren if the world hates you we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren He that loves not his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive, herein, this is how we know or perceive the love of God. Because he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But Whoever hates, whoever has this world's good and sees his brother have need and shuts up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, believers, children of God, family of God, let us not love in word nor just in mouth or tongue. But in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth. This is how we know we're of the truth and shall assure, have confidence, assurance in our hearts before Him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, I understand this is probably not new to most people here today, but that doesn't mean it's being practiced. And I pray we'll be maybe reminded, maybe made aware for the first time of a true sign of a believer, a child of God, is our love for the brethren, love for each other. And if there's a person here today who doesn't pass the test, and your Holy Spirit convicts them and seize their need for salvation, I pray they'll be saved today. Become a part of the family of God. God, no doubt there are people in this room who struggle demonstrating love for whatever reason. I pray today you would free them from what hinders them so that their walk with you can be demonstrated by godly love love we ask this in jesus name amen you may be seated if you remember last week and i won't preach that again john talked about sin in the life of a believer and what helps us understand this text is that the sin in the life of the believer was not that a believer does not sin It is that a believer does not exhibit or live a lifestyle of sin, a habitual practice of sin. Using or with that truth in mind, John kind of flips the switch or the script, if you will, and talks about in the same way that a Christian doesn't live a lifestyle of sin, a Christian should practice a lifestyle of love. If I was a preacher and used letters, I would say. Last week he talked about living a lifestyle of lawlessness, but this week he's talking about a lifestyle of love. Jesus himself said, By this shall all men know you're my disciples, by your love for one another. A Christian An authentic Christian, as we've been talking about for a month or so now, should be defined by his or her ability and practice of godly love. Right off the bat, most people who've been in church for more than a few weeks know that there's different types of love in Scripture. And uh, we're at least studious enough to know which kind of love is he talking about here. And um, very rarely, if ever, is the latter eros used, which is where we get our word erotic. Very rarely, if ever, is that used in scripture. So then we always want to kind of disseminate in our minds. Are we talking about brotherly love or are we talking about godly love? Well, go ahead and fix this for you. John's talking about godly love. The word there is the word for agape love, the type of love that God demonstrates to us. And every believer who has experienced godly love in salvation should be a person who can practice godly love. Therefore a person who has the inability to practice godly love has never experienced godly love. John wants us to know, and I know When I say love, there's a couple thoughts that come to mind. You know, today, to be honest, I don't like to preach on love. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? Because you're so hard-hearted, you don't like to love people. (laughs) No, that's what somebody thought. I felt it. No, because quite honestly, there's too many um, softies. It's just all about love. We love everybody. God loves the world. We're all God's children. We're not. We're not all God's children, but God does love the world. But we're not all God's children, and so I don't like to preach about love, quite honestly, because I don't want somebody to think I'm a softy. I'd rather preach on hell, something mean, sin. I had a county commissioner friend of mine, and he's a good guy. He goes to. He used, the church used to be good, but now it's kind of liberal. But anyway, it's a Baptist church in Salisbury the first one there but anyway he um (laughs) every time he sees me he says what you preaching on this Sunday sin? hell? Uh, I didn't even tell him I was preaching on love this week because I didn't want to seem like I fit in at his church so I didn't do it but the reality is even for people like me Some of you are wondering, what kind of people is that? We ought to have, within our spiritual DNA, the ability to love like God loves. It's a sign of a true believer. In this text that we see, we're going to look at really two thoughts. First of all, the message of love that was given. John says, by the way, John knew Jesus. He hung out with him. He preached about him. John says to the believers here, to the church, this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that you love one another. In chapter 2, John said, therefore let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. John is reiterating, he's underlining the reality that you believers The church here, you have heard this message from the beginning. There's nothing new here. You heard it from Jesus. You've heard it from the apostles. And the the first church practiced this truth. Loving. You've heard this from the beginning. This is the message of Jesus. This is the message of the apostles. This is the message of the church. Jesus said in John 13, 34, A new commandment I give unto you that you Love one another. And that's when he follows it up by saying, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, by your love for one another. He says, a new commandment I give. Uh, There's a new sheriff in town who's got some new laws. And it's love one another. Jesus, I think it's safe to say, was a little ahead of myself, the epitome, the demonstration of true love. New commandment. So in this message of love, I want us to look at four kind of sub-thoughts. So you thought we were getting away with two. But first of all, there is an exhortation. There's an encouragement to believers to love. It's not a choice. It's not a, hey, if you want to, or if you can, or if you think about it. It's a demand. It's an exhortation to the believer, to the church, to the follower of Christ in Jesus' day, love one another, that we should love one another. It's the expectation to love each other. Here's where it's really kind of important to understand within the church, the brethren and the sistren. We are to love one another. I'm going to be very honest. I kind of fought this while I was preparing as to how much do I hit on this or not. Well, I need to hit on it at least some because that's the text. But I'm scared that people think if we have to love each other in the church, that means we can hate other people. I'm not sure if that was funny or a point. But that's not what it means. And I I can cover that because Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. And he was not talking about your neighbor on the pew. Because when they said, the, the bright lawyer guy comes up and says well jesus just who is my neighbor he said well let me tell you a story and he told the story of the good samaritan which was clear it wasn't brother and brother in christ that's who our neighbor is the person that the world says it's okay to hate culturally it's all right that's just who we are oh that hurt a little bit didn't it i felt like that hurt well, we're, we I mean, I'm born and raised here. That's how, that's how we do. Okay, that, that was offensive, so I'm going to stop doing that. But Jesus said, your neighbor is the person that culture says it's all right to dislike. But I say, uh-uh. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's not the message. Y'all look really upset about that. That's not the message. That was just the point. Jesus is talking, John is talking here. Jesus said earlier, the new commandment is to love one another. Love the brethren. Love other believers. You say, well, that's that should be obvious. You're right. It should. Some of the best fights in town have happened in churches. Not here. Thank the Lord. I mean knock down dragouts. Oh, on one hand, you kind of would like to see it <laughs> just in somebody else's church, not not here. like one time, just somebody slug somebody one time no, but don't do it here. go somewhere else. I've got some ideas of some churches. If you want to do it there, go there. <laughs> the reality is there's an understanding an exhortation, an expectation for the believer. To love. This is how all men will know you're my disciples, your love for one another. It's a lifestyle demonstrated by godly love. Most of us would like to think that we have a lifestyle that is indicative of godly love. Amen. We would like to think that, right? We try Okay, we've got reasons why we don't, but I read this story about, this is a true story, I'm told, by a, he was a deacon in a Baptist church. This is true in California years ago before they went communist, but he, this is true. I, I read it, and the guy kept saying, this is a true story. I'm really going to tell you this true story. So um, he, he was a deacon in the Baptist church. He, he, lit, he worked downtown somewhere in California, and um, business guy, a uh, lot of responsibilities and he got up one morning and his car wouldn't start and he was you know kind of OCD got to be on time and the traffic there Los Angeles I guess where it was, was super terrible and um, so now he's behind because his car wouldn't start so he's already late he gets in the car he gets in his wife's car of course that probably didn't go well hey, I'm gonna have to have your car today well I gotta go uh, just. so that went well and then so he gets in the, and now he's in traffic He usually get early. He would be early so he could beat the traffic. Now he's right in the middle of traffic, and it's terrible. And so he's upset, but he's a deacon in the Baptist church. He's a Christian. That happens, right? Especially on the roads. Oh, my goodness, turn your signals on. (laughs) Jesus loves you. (laughs) All right don't understand. It's like, oh, that model must not have had signals. That's what I say. But anyway, so um, turn them on. If I had to wait, and then you turn. So, so, so he's in traffic, and um, he's upset. He's going to be late for work. He's never late for work. He's got a presentation, but he's a Christian, and he's trying to compose himself like all good Christians do, and they're bumper to bumper, and they're at a standstill. And behind him, somebody goes, beep, beep. And he's thinking, what could they possibly be beefing for? We're not going anywhere. And so he says a few prayers. And then, um, beep, beep. True story, I'm told. Beep, beep. And um, he's losing his mind, like most people would today, I think. At least I would. And so he's talking to himself. He's having a little talk with Jesus, and it's not working. And uh, later, it's beep, beep, the third time. He unbuckles his seatbelt. He gets out on the highway, true story I'm told, and walks up to the guy and says, what could you possibly be beeping for? We're bumper to bumper. We haven't moved in 10 minutes. And the guy says, your bumper sticker said, honk if you love Jesus. <laughs> and immediately, no, he's reminded, oh, I do. Uh, God bless you. Have a good day. Let's enjoy the traffic together. I don't know. The moral of that story is, rip that sticker off. <laughs> no, the real, no, there's more preaching to that, but um, living a lifestyle of love is far more than just having a bumper sticker or a Jesus fish or a thank you, Jesus sign in your yard. It's a lifestyle. And um, everybody can at least amen under their breath. We are tested daily in this messed up world to demonstrate the love of Christ. So there's an exhortation to believers. But then uh, John gives this example, and this is a crazy example. He doesn't give an example of someone who loves like he's told us to love. He gives us the example of Cain, the first murderer in Scripture. Now, I I enjoyed studying this. I knew about Cain and Abel, but this week it's just, there's a lot of things that I try to stay on task when I preach, but um, this is Adam and Eve's, sons right that, that is right I didn't make that, that okay I read that much I thought that was who it was so they're one of the first few people on the planet a form of socialism teaches that we are oh there he goes somebody, okay get that out of the way there is an overwhelming indoctrination of socialism that has permeated our educational culture in America that teaches that people are um, a product of their environment. I understand my dad was a philosopher and he said if you lay down with dogs you get up with fleas. I understand that. He said a couple other things that we can't repeat in church. but. <laughs> I understand you can be affected by those around you, but the socialistic, and there's some other words there, philosophy is they can't help they're a murderer, they were affected by the society they lived in. I hope nobody thinks I'm making this up. A lot of the bail reform and get out of jail free cards that's going on in this country are based on the socialistic ideals that have been taught to graduates of law school that are now in positions of leadership, and they really believe this junk. It doesn't matter that he killed three people two different times and got out of jail and did it again. Uh, He's a product of his society. Well, Scripture slaps that in the face. We were born sinners. Cain didn't have a lot of people to hang around with to talk him into murdering his brother. And I hope that means something to us and I hope we hold that in our pockets as uh, Bible believers that the problem is sin. There's a solution for that and it's not bail reform. This is the first murder that's ever recorded and John makes it clear that Cain was not a child of God. I've heard people discuss, well, why exactly was the... Well, John tells us why he killed his brother. He says, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one. Remember, there are only two families. He's in the family of Satan. He's of the wicked one. He killed his brother. And then John asks, why did he kill him? Well, he got with the wrong crowd. Nope. He was a part of the wrong family. He was of his father, the devil. And he became envious, he became jealous, he was full of hatred, and John tells us why. Because his own works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Bill Jolly taught us many, many years ago in elementary school Bible, back when our country was Christian and liked Christians, um, how to this disseminate between Cain and Abel we didn't know because um, Abel gave the more able sacrifice I just threw that out because some of you know who Bill Jolly is we'll keep going Cain did not do righteous and his brother did the reality is the first murder and this is you can't make this up the first murder was a religious murder Fast forward a couple thousand years, a few thousand years, there's still a lot of religious murders going on. Don't you let Fox News, CNN, and some of the other idiot news sources confuse you as to what's going on. This is a religious war. This is a holy war. This is prophetic. There's a reason they hate the Jews, which is also a secondary reason why they hate anyone who supports the Jews. They hate us. I can't say anymore. I did that Wednesday. we got to preach this morning this. John said in the previous chapter, chapter 3, in this the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. Whoever does not righteousness is not of God. The Bible makes it clear that Cain did not righteousness and he got jealous because his brother did righteousness. So that don't sound right. Well, it doesn't sound right, but it's still going on today. The most destructive, this is a quote that has been around for a while, the most destructive force in the world is jealousy and envy. Envy is discontent at the sight of another's excellence or good fortune, accompanied with some degree of hatred and a desire to possess equal advantages. Cain's envious. Cain is jealous. Jealousy is the seed to murder, to hatred. Cain kills Abel. This is important because his brother did right, and he didn't. And now he's upset about it. The Bible doesn't say, and this is you can take this or leave it, it doesn't say that Cain, uh, I probably shouldn't say it that way. Let me say it this way. Cain did evil and his brother did righteous and he was upset about it. This is why he says, why did he kill his brother? His brother did righteous and he didn't. Why is that so important? Because the next point in this message of love is found in verse 13 and John follows that principle by saying, brethren don't be surprised. Marvel not. Expect the world to hate you. I hope we see this clearly. We're at point number three. C, an expectation of the believer. The world will hate us. Why? He answers it the same way, why did Cain kill his brother? Because he did righteous, and he did not do righteous. Here's the, here's the question. I thought I was such a good person. Why do did, why did they hate me? I was so nice. I've never said a bad word about them. Why do they hate me? They hate you because they is the world, the world system, the system of the world, the antichrist system of the world that doesn't work accordingly to the word of God. They will hate us simply because we do righteous. And a Christian should do righteous. We should live righteously. We practice righteousness. And the world will hate us in the same way Cain hated his brother. These verses are not separated. They're there together on purpose. So that we, believers, have a better understanding of why the world hates us. If you've not reconciled in your heart and mind and body and soul that the world hates us. And you don't understand how the world operates. Or either you're part of the world. Jesus said, I basically, don't worry about it. They hated me first. Even from the time disciples started following Jesus, the world started hating them. They showed their hatred for them by murdering nearly all of them for what they stood for. Jesus, everywhere he did, everywhere he went, only did righteous, only did good. Never told anybody to get a haircut. That we know of. Unless they really needed one. That's a joke. Everywhere he went, the Bible says he did good. But they hated him. They murdered him. Why? Our righteousness, church, this this is just a, a true principle. Our righteousness will highlight the world's unrighteousness. There are people no, this is not in my notes, but I know this practically speaking. Well, I don't want them to think I'm better that I think I'm better than them. I know this is a struggle in teenagers and young adults on some decisions that they make or don't make. Well, I know I shouldn't do that. I know I shouldn't be there. But I got a friend. They're lost. And I don't want, I don't want them to think that I think I'm better than them. And that is a trick That is a while of the devil. To get you to do something that you know someone who practices righteousness should not do. Because your friend is not one who practices righteousness. There's 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 a schism between the family of God and the family of the devil. They don't get along. I was reading last week, and I almost threw this one out there, but now's a good time, um, the, the, the why we shouldn't be unequally yoked. You young folks know what that means? That means you eat them scrambled. Not, no. It means Christians marry Christians. Period. Any young people over here? It means Christians married Christians. That's what being unequally yoked means. We don't unequally yoke ourselves as Christians to a non-Christian. And the writer said, because their father is the devil, and he's a bad (laughs) father-in-law. Some of you can add on to that in your own. You use that tomorrow at work about your mother-in-law and all that stuff. But (laughs) maybe it's because you married into the family of the devil. Oh, that sounds bad, doesn't it? That's why we've been fighting all this time. No, don't be surprised, he says. Don't marvel. They will hate us. And then in this message of love, the last thing we see here in verse 14 is the evidence of a believer. We can know that we have passed from death unto life. By the way, if you've never been born again, you are dead in your trespasses and sin. You are living, you are abiding in death. It's what John teaches, Is what Paul teaches. But we can know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. Think about it. I'm going to try to animate this in my mind because it helps. I say this often and it probably just exposes and highlights my sometimes lack of spirituality, but I apologize. I have flesh. There are times, my wife can probably attest to this, where I will audibly say, Today I had assurance and confidence that I am truly born again. Anybody, do I need to finish the story? Because I dealt with someone that if I wasn't, I would have responded differently. Now, that's not as superficial as it may sound. That is spiritual. Because the Holy Spirit resides in us. And we're a child of God, not a child of the devil. And sometimes even children of the same family fight. I didn't say I wanted to smack the child of the devil. We should want... No, 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 we don't want to. But... Children of God and children of God still sometimes have disagreements. Okay. Well, how did, If you haven't caught on what I'm saying, then I'm sorry, I don't have time. But I would have probably have responded differently if I wasn't truly born again. And some of you are thinking right now, I can read and feel it, well, what if I responded like I shouldn't have, but I think I'm pretty sure I'm born again. Well, that's what John says, you have sinned and now you confess your sin, repent up and he's faithful and just to forgive you because it can happen and it does. But sometimes I'm reminded and I'm encouraged, I must truly be born again. I didn't get out of my car on the interstate or whatever. John says in the next chapter, verse 8 of chapter 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God. Verse 15, I don't have time to spend there, but John says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Remember John hung around Jesus. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5? You don't have to put it up there. You've heard it said of old, whoever murders... But I say unto you, whoever hates has committed murder in his heart. It's a big deal to hate. It's murder in the eyes of God. Christians don't hate. I've got a whole page of notes right here, but if somebody would at least grunt in an affirmative, I won't preach it. Christians don't hate. Hatred is murder in the eyes of God. Hatred is the opposite of godly love. My mom used to say, there'll be no liars in heaven. Now, there's some verses for that. But the same verses say, there'll be no murderers in heaven. Now just so we're clear, there will be people who murdered in heaven. But there'll be no murderers in heaven. There'll be none who abide in hate. There will be none who practice a habitual lifestyle of hate. I didn't say that. Southern Baptist didn't say that. God says it. And because y'all hesitated in affirming my message, Paul said envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such of that of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in the past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Revelation chapter 21, but the fearful, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, are you telling me, preacher, do you really believe if you hate somebody that's what God's referring to as murder? Yep. Yep. Oh, golly, I didn't know it stopped stop right here. Maybe I should have read that verse in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. Jesus is speaking. It's in red. But I say unto you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever shall say to his brother, Raka shall be in danger of the council. but whoever shall say thou fool, thou be in danger of, danger of hellfire. So since we're here, tilling down, in a place I didn't think we'd have to, is it possible for a Christian to have an uprising of hate in his or her heart? Yep, it's sin. When it happens, we're still in 1 John. The Holy Spirit convicts us of it. If you're born again, says, nuh-uh, brother, not how that works. And you say, you know what? That is not the lifestyle of a child of God and someone who belongs to Him. And I am convicted by the Holy Spirit of hatred in my heart, which Jesus spiritually looks at as murder, and I say, God, I am sorry. That's a sin. I repent of it. Please forgive me. 1 John 1, 9. And He's faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us from all righteousness. But a child of God, whose Father is God, does not practice a habitual lifestyle of hate toward any person, any group, any religion, period. It's the Word of God. No matter where you live or where you're from. Ah, y'all made this difficult. Is anybody mad at me? I feel like y'all are mad now. I haven't made up anything haven't read this out of a magazine. I'm only reading the Word of God. And it's convicting. And it's harsh. And it cuts like a two-edged sword. And there will be a lot of religious people to stand before a holy God and hear, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. There is no place for hatred in the heart of a child of God. We're to love one another. How? It's a message of love, but then John gives us the manifestation of love. We are to love like Christ. In verse 16 he says, this is how we can know what godly love looks like. And John uses a phrase that's unique to John. And he says, We can know the love of God because he laid down his life. That's unique to John. Because he laid down his life for us. I think it's unique to John because um, he copied a lot of what Jesus said. He stole it from Jesus. In John 15, Jesus said, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, than a man that laid down his life for his friends. And John says, We can see the love of God demonstrated because Jesus laid down his life for us. To lay down the life means to to divest oneself of something you give something up a true believer will give up something for another believer he says as Jesus laid down his life so we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren oh my goodness now, tell me again what Jesus did. He laid down his life. Paul said to the Philippian church, let this mind be which is in you, which is in Christ Jesus, who being the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death of the cross. Jesus, the King of Kings, left his throne, left his kingship, although he was still king, and took upon him the form of a servant. He divested himself of something. For someone else. For he who knew no sin became sin that you and I might be made known the righteousness of God in him. The sinless one subjected himself to sinful humanity. He became sin, he did not sin for me for us he laid down his life he divested himself of something he was and is and was uh, rightfully his for me for you while we were yet sinners he died he laid down his life. Oh, he. Uh, I love. Jesus said, "Nobody's taking it. I'll lay it down." They didn't kill him because they overcame him. He laid down his life, as a shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Divest himself of something. Songwriter said, "If if that isn't love." The ocean's dry. He left the splendor of heaven knowing his destiny would be a lonely hill called Golgotha. To what? Lay down his life for me. If that isn't love, there's never been love. When we see the picture of love that God demonstrated in his son laying down his life, the manifestation of love in Christ. He says there should be a manifestation of love in Christians. Oh, to where we lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, for being very clear, it's not technically dying for someone, but it's divesting yourself of something. It's a selfless, sacrificial love for the brethren. I have to finish this. And he gives an example in verses 17 and 18. What does that look like? What does the manifestation of love in a Christian look like? Whoever has the world's goods, that means the world's livelihood or the the world's substance, and seeth his brother have need, I got to stop there. Everybody's still awake. I know it's this time. Can we not all say, on different levels, that we have more than we need? Now, I'm be we could all—we all want a little more. Pagans, no, we all have a little more than we need. We, most of us, if we're honest, say we got more than we deserve. And what he is saying here specifically is the one who has the world's goods, some of us have more goods than others, it's the world's goods. There's a a word that we can overlook here, and seeth his brother have a need. This is important, the word see there is really important because this is how it applies to Christians in the church. It's not that you uh, casually observe a need. The word there is that you are intentionally looking for needs well I heard the other day you might still meet that need but it's looking out for each other any needs? anybody having needs? any brethren have needs? don't raise your hand it's we're looking out it's what the church does it's what this church does I believe very well but it's what every individual believer should be doing if you got a little more than you deserve, a little more than you thought you'd ever have, whether it's money, whether it's stuff, and you see someone in need, it's not you have a Corvette and the pastor wants a Corvette and you go buy him one. Those will be greatly appreciated, but that's not what that is. It's when we have a little extra goods and your brother or sister in Christ has a need, we're looking for it and we're ready to meet it. God saw the world had a need and he met the need. And in the same way, the church, brothers and sisters in Christ, should demonstrate godly love by intentionally looking for and meeting needs of each other. Don't just say it. That's verse 18, my version. But do it. I've already upset people and I probably don't want to do it anymore. I'm not going to be able to eat lunch. I'll somehow get through We have to be careful. Please be careful when someone has a need. Please understand what I'm about to say. Oh, let's pray for Bill. He's got a need. I Personally, I, I'm not perfect. I'm just close. But personally, <laughs> I try not to tell anybody I'm going to pray for them unless I know 122% I'm going to pray for them. And that might mean doing it then, or at least putting a reminder in my phone that I'm supposed to pray for Billy, right? But it's one thing to say you're going to pray for somebody, another thing to do it. But it's also another thing, according to James, kind of to say you're going to pray for somebody instead of doing something for somebody you could have done. Brother or sister, be cold, and you've got two coats on, or twelve in the closet. Right? Oh. Go and be blessed. No. Go get your coat. Give it to them. You got more than you need. Brothers in need. James says, don't just say it, do it. John says. The manifestation of love in a Christian is seeing a need, looking for a need, and meeting the need. Versus the brother, or the so-called brother, who sees a need and shuts up his bowels of compassion. Bowels here is heart, is the center of compassion. Shut it up. Here's what he's saying. A true, born-again, authentic Christian can't see a brother or sister in need and not have a desire to meet it doesn't mean you have the goods to meet it, but you close up the bowels of compassion. You turn a cold heart, blind eye to see in the need. True Christians don't do that because we saw a demonstration of God's love. A true believer has bowels of compassion. Looking for a need. I have to say this, as pastor of this church, this church is known for being a caring, loving church. You heard a testimony of it already. People all over this building can say, this church has done this and this and this for me. That doesn't mean we wrote you a check and paid your light bill, but there's some people that can say that. Doesn't mean we filled up your gas tank, but people can say that. We intentionally budget to help the household of faith so that there's a genuine need and the staff knows about it. We take care of it. I didn't take care of it. The staff didn't take care of it. The church took care of it. That's what believers do. No true believer would stand up and argue that we shouldn't be paying or helping out another believer. I've said a million times over This ought to be a place where people show up and feel loved and feel welcomed and want to be. We live in a sin-cursed, corrupt world six days out of the week. You ought to feel like a pig in a mud pile or mud puddle wanting to come to a place where you can hang out with people that believe like you, love God like you. You can talk about things. We ought to long for it we ought to do it more and more as the day approaches and it's approaching so in a couple of weeks when we have our little chili cook-off do you know about that? I don't know about it, you ain't talked about it but for six weeks straight anyway when we have that social show up, hang out I don't like chili, what do you like Christians? <laughs> show up hang out more and more as the day approaches. Would you pray with me? God, I know this passage is full of truth, hard truth for a lot of people. And God, when we read this, we have to evaluate our love life for each other. There's no room for hatred or murder within the family of God. God, if we see anything in this passage, we see a demonstration of your love for us. Your love for the world. And for those of us who are born again, we're grateful just saying it doesn't do justice. Or we're overwhelmed that you would love us enough to lay down your life for us so that we could pass from death to new life. God, no doubt in this room, this many people, there's surely someone who's never accepted your gift of salvation, the gift of your son Jesus laying down his life for us maybe for the first time they see their need for salvation. Understanding just as Cain, we were born into sin. Born into sin with the ability to sin. And that sin was what separated us from you. But that your son Jesus died in our place, paid the price for our sins, but if we trust in him, we can have salvation. And I pray today, if there's a person here that's never done that, that you would convict their hearts. God, no doubt there's some Christians in here that we still struggle. We still have a sin nature. We still wrestle. There's temptations to hate. There's temptation to sin but we know it's not of God. And I pray that we would get freedom and liberty from those tendencies so that we can be known as believers by the manifestation of our love for each other. Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to know more about Central Baptist Church, events and ministries, please visit our webpage at cbckannapolis.com.